Well, good morning. Good morning to those who are here. Good morning to those who are joining us via the online stream. We're happy to be with you, at least in this medium right now. Thank you for being part of this today. I pray that the Lord would bless the teaching of his word today. Um, I just want to continue our series today. It's called, our series, if you've been with us the last several weeks, has been called The Classics, Seeing the Old Through the New. And this morning, we're actually going to tell three stories at the same time, and that sounds a little challenging, of course, but we're going to do our best to share these stories in the proper way. And the reason we're doing this is we're going to share three stories with one main point. And if you can tell the slide up there, the title of our lesson today is Undeserving. Undeserving. And to open this up today, I just want to ask you a question. Did you ever receive something you didn't deserve? Could be some praise, could be a gift. Did you ever receive something you didn't deserve? Well, I've shared this many times, but probably the greatest blessing I ever received on this earth is my wife. I would call it the greatest hustle of all time was convincing her and her dad that she should marry me. And uh, she did. She said yes to that. But uh, Janine is one of the greatest blessings I've ever received. Of course, something that I consider I, I don't deserve her, but I'm thankful for her. I'll share a couple other stories of things that we received that we didn't deserve. In Michigan, we were missionaries. We were under-supported missionaries, which means I was trying to work and support ourselves. And we were struggling. It was the honest truth. We were struggling financially, struggling to make uh, means and things like that. And I just, I wasn't, we weren't doing a great job getting by each month. It was really, really tight. And there were a couple people in our church that knew some of the struggle. And we had this guy in our church an older gentleman, and he had been there a long time at our church. And I remember when we would go to the service sometimes, we'd have that meet and greet that we do here at our own church, and we'd go around and shake hands, which back in the day we did shake hands and we hugged, and that was still okay. It will be again. But uh, he would come up to me during the meet and greet, and he would, he would shake my hand, and real nice guy. And on a couple occasions, he'd shake my hand, and he'd actually slip me something as he shook my hand, and then he'd walk away. And I'd look down, and it was a check. And I'd open the check, and on the check it said $1,000. And it was just flooring. It was just shocking. And I, he was gone. He, he just slipped me the check, and he left. I didn't even have time to thank him. And I just showed Janine, and we were just both so touched by that. After the service, I kind of tried to track him down to say thanks to him. And he never wanted thanks. He never wanted gratitude. He never wanted recognition for it. He just wanted us to have the money. And so it was very awkward when I tried to thank him. And and praise him for the check that he gave us because he didn't want any thanks for that. But he did that on two or three occasions. Would just come up, slip me a check, and then just disappear. And it was always such a shocking thing, something that we felt we were very undeserving of. Uh, that actually happened again a few years later. We had this uh, young man that we were discipling, and he would come over on occasion and just hang out with us. And on occasion, he would just come over, and before he'd leave, he'd just drop a check on the kitchen counter, and then he'd, he'd jet. It was the same kind of thing, and we'd open up the check, and this time it said $3,000, just an enormous amount of money. And I didn't know what to do. I, I, don't, I don't know if you guys are okay and okay with receiving things that are that big, but it was very awkward for us because we felt so undeserving of that. And so I'd try to, like, you know, next time I found him, I'd try to thank him and kind of even give him a hug, and it was very awkward because <laughs> he didn't want a hug. He didn't want any gratitude. He just wanted us to have the check. But it was very, in our, in our position, very undeserving of us to receive such a thing. Uh, in Michigan also, we had, a, we had a car situation. My car that I actually brought up to Michigan ended up breaking down, and it was, it was beyond basically repair. It was almost totaled. 
and the fix was going to be several thousand dollars to fix this car, and we didn't have anything close to that to fix this car. So my parents actually, once they understood that, actually did something pretty shocking too. They actually gave us their car, and we were just talking about this. You guys uh, gave us your car and realized we needed it more than you did, and so they just said, here's our car. Take our car. You guys need it, and uh, we didn't have to pay anything for it. And that was another thing. It felt just very undeserving. I don't know how you're supposed to react to someone who gives you a car, uh, but it felt very undeserving. And that happened again when we got here. We got here and we had one car. We had our ministry. I was zipping back and forth in our minivan and leaving Janine home without a car. And someone that knew us recognized that we would be blessed by another car, and they did it again. They gave us a car. And it didn't cost us a dime. They just came. We went to the place where you register cars, and they just said, here, I want to sign it over to your name and just want you guys to have it. And it felt the same way. It felt like I didn't know what to say. What do you say when someone gives you a car? It's like, thank you? It just doesn't seem enough. And so there's a few times in my life that I felt undeserving of something so grand. Well, today we're going to look at some stories that talk all about being undeserving. And we're going to tell three stories at the same time. And we're calling the series the classic, Seeing the Old Through the New. And two of these stories come from the Old Testament. One of them comes from the New Testament. We're going to combine these stories Although they're three separate stories, we're going to combine them into one point at the end of this topic, undeserving. So you're going to have to join me today. You're going to have to stay with me today. We're going to tell three separate stories at the same time. And we're going to start in the book of Ruth. Maybe not as classic of a story as David and Goliath and Moses and Noah and his ark. But it is a classic story for those who have been in Christianity long enough. The story of Boaz and Ruth from Ruth. Uh, chapters 1 to 4. We don't have the time to read all of these stories. We're not going to do that today. I'm actually going to give a recap of these stories. But our first story comes from Ruth. Our second story is going to come from the book of Hosea. And the third story is going to be a very classic story from Luke chapter 15. But we're going to start with the story of Boaz and Ruth. And although I don't have the time to share this entire story today, I don't have time to read the four chapters of Ruth, I highly encourage everyone to take the time and read Ruth 1 to 4. The story is going to amaze you if you haven't read it before. But I'm going to give a recap of this story, and I want you to understand the details of this story, the story of Boaz and Ruth. This man, his name is Elimelech, and his wife and his two sons go to a country called Moab. And his wife's name is Naomi. Tragically, on this trip, Elimelech and his two sons die leaving Naomi on her own without, her, without all the men in her life. And at this point, his two sons had been married, so there's three widows left over. There's Naomi, and then there's her two daughter-in-laws, and their names are Ruth and Orpah. And Naomi is completely abandoned by all the men in her life because they die, and now she's left with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And it's a really sad beginning to this story. And so after her husband and her two sons died, Naomi sort of instructs her, her daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, to return to their homeland, to live with their original families. And the reason she does this is so that they can have some sort of hope in a future, because Naomi has no future to give them. Her sons are now dead, and staying with Naomi wouldn't make any sense whatsoever, so she actually encourages both daughters to go back to their homeland and insists that they sort of have a, home, a hope and a future by doing so. Well, both daughters originally uh, refuse this idea and want to stay with Naomi. That's actually kind of a sweet detail of the story. But Naomi's sort of insistent. She sort of gives them this plea that they need to return to their homelands, 
because there's really no reason for them to stay with her. Her sons are dead. She can't remedy the situation. It didn't make any sense for them to be bound to a hopeless widow when their whole lives were ahead of them. So she sort of insists that they leave her and go back to their homeland and so they can have a hope and a future. Well, Naomi is able to convince one of the daughters to return home. Orpah is convinced. She's very sad by this, but she's convinced by Naomi that she should return to her homeland, go back to her family. Ruth, on the other hand, can't be convinced. She cannot be convinced to leave Naomi. She insists on staying with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And I want to pause because that's a very interesting detail of this story. If your mom and, your, and you were with your mom and your dad and your dad died, you would most likely would find a lot of reasons to stay with your own mom. But this is Ruth's mother-in-law. And that's a very unusual detail that she would want to stay and insist on staying with her mother-in-law and, uh, not, and refuse to go back to her homeland. But since she's determined, and Naomi sees that she's determined, she finally allows Ruth to stay with Naomi. And the two of them return to Bethlehem together. Right in time for what was called the barley harvest. The barley harvest. This is when they were going to glean the fields, get the grain from the fields, get the food for winter time, and things like that. And they returned to Bethlehem right in time for this barley harvest. Where we're going to fast forward because we need to meet this character. His name is Boaz. He's a very important character to this story. We're going to fast forward a little bit to when Ruth meets Boaz. You see, Naomi has this relative, and his name is Boaz. Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth, requests that she can go to the fields and get some sort of usefulness for Naomi because she feels like she doesn't have a purpose. And Naomi kind of warned her about that, but she feels like she doesn't have a purpose, so she wants to go to the fields, glean some grain, bring it back to Naomi, and Naomi agrees to this. So Ruth just happens upon this man Boaz's field. It's completely by chance, except for the sovereignty of God, of course. And Boaz is related to Naomi, but not to Ruth. Boaz is related to Naomi. Ruth is also related to Naomi through the son. And so the two kind of come together here in this field. And Boaz, interestingly enough, is also from the town of Bethlehem. And I just think that's an interesting footnote that he's from the town of Bethlehem. Because there's an interesting parallel forming here that we need to pay attention to. So Boaz sees Ruth in his field and he doesn't know who this lady is. So he inquires, who is this lady in my field? And the people tell him that it's the widowed daughter of Naomi in his field. And Ruth, finally meeting Boaz, comes up to Boaz and begs to let her glean in his field so she can bring some grain back to her mother-in-law. And Ruth is completely thinking about her mother-in-law and the family. And so Boaz now has a decision to let her stay or to kind of kick her out of his field. And not only does Boaz allow her to stay, but he insists that she glean nowhere else. He tells Ruth, that whatever he has is hers to take. He basically says this phrase, Ruth, make yourself at home. Has anyone ever told you guys that? Make yourself at home. You go over to someone's house. I've said this before, but I've always wanted to test and see how far I could push that. I wanted to climb in their bed, pull their covers up over me, grab a bag of chips and a soda, turn their Netflix on and go, voila, thank you. And basically that's what Boaz is telling Ruth without the Netflix part. Make yourself at home and take whatever you want. Whatever you want is yours to take. And not only this, but Boaz protects Ruth from being pursued by some of the younger men in the field. He actually kind of takes a parental watchful care over Ruth because she's widowed. There's young men in his field. He doesn't want any sort of harm to come to Ruth, even though he just met her. 
So he sort of takes this parental care over Ruth and also gives her basically a blank check to take whatever she wants from his field. And in Ruth chapter 2, verse 10, we have this verse. And this is a really amazing verse. Ruth is so amazed by this that she says in verse 10 of chapter 2, it says, She fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? She's stunned by the kindness and the generosity of Boaz, going, Why? I don't understand. I'm so undeserving of what you've already done for me. Why would you do this since I'm a foreigner? I have no relation, no direct relation to you, Boaz. And Boaz is showing Ruth intense kindness here. And that sort of introduces us to story number one. We're going to get back to that story. But now we're going to go to story number two. And story number two comes from the book of Hosea. And again, once once again, I encourage you, I highly encourage you to read the book of Hosea, especially chapters one and two, where we're going to linger here a little bit. Hosea chapter one and two, we're going to meet Hosea and Gomer. Hosea, in our second story, is a prophet from God. He's a prophet from God, as there's many prophets in the scripture. Hosea is a prophet from God, and he's given a very strange task in chapter 1 of Hosea. God tells Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. That's what he says, go and marry a prostitute. And the reason for this is because Hosea's marriage is going to represent God's then current relationship with his people Israel. Hosea in the marriage is going to act out the part of God, And the prostitute is going to act out the part of the nation of Israel. Because the Israelites were being very unfaithful to the Lord at this time. And so he tells Hosea, go marry a prostitute. You're going to act out me and the prostitute, without even knowing it, is going to act out the part of the nation of Israel. So Hosea obeys. He obeys God. He marries a woman named Gomer, who is known to be a prostitute. That's, That's her reputation. And this is a really hard task. I can only imagine what kind of task this was for Hosea. Have you ever been given a hard task? I know now during the pandemic that we're dealing with right now, we are all dealing with specially hard things that we didn't have to deal with before, like Zoom meetings. Zoom meetings, I find, are very challenging, where at the beginning they weren't, and now they feel like a chore. Zoom meetings are difficult. Uh, Homeschooling for those who are parents are now becoming the primary teachers. That's a little bit difficult to take on homeschooling. Uh, Cutting your own hair, anybody? Cutting your own hair? I, I cut my own hair, but that's not hard. I just stick my head out the window. Uh, but cutting your own hair is, is a difficult thing. <laughs> yeah, don't laugh. We don't want the laughter on the live stream. No, you're allowed to laugh. Uh, finding reasons to shower each day, maybe each week. Is that a challenge <laughs> now that we're in a pandemic? See, Hosea is given a very hard task to marry a prostitute, a person that is known to be unfaithful. And this story kind of plays out like you'd expect it to. For a time, Gomer is with Hosea and loves Hosea. But it doesn't take long before Gomer starts to chase other lovers who she believes are going to love her better than Hosea, and she completely abandons Hosea. All Gomer knows is how to be unfaithful. So she completely acts according to her nature of selfishness and unfaithfulness, and she chases other men other lovers, and completely abandons Hosea. Does that sound familiar? Does that story sound familiar? Because it's supposed to. It's supposed to represent God and his nation, Israel, and it does perfectly, sadly. And so now now Hosea has an option. He can either divorce Gomer because she deserves it, 
She's the one that left. She's the one that abandoned Hosea. She's the one that chased other lovers. So he can divorce Gomer and let her chase other lovers and never think about her again. That's an option for Hosea. Or he can actually try to win his wife back to himself so that their marriage can be restored. And as I'm reading this story, you know what I'm thinking? Come on, Hosea, this is easy. This is an easy decision. Forget Gomer. She's a loser. She was unfaithful to you. She deserves no mercy. She deserves no second chance. Let Gomer go. She's a, she's a loser. She doesn't deserve your love anymore. And as you might expect, Gomer's other lovers, the one that she's now chasing, can't love her the way she expects, and they can't love her the way Hosea did. Even though she should have known that. She doesn't know that until she finds that out uh, by experience. So she actually begins to consider how good she once had it with Hosea. Interesting. But sadly, she had already ruined her life. She had already ruined her chances with Hosea, and he would likely never take her back. And so that introduces us to story number two. And now we come to story number three, which is a much more familiar story. It's, it's in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. And the third story is the parable of the prodigal son. Once again, I really highly encourage you, if you haven't or haven't in a long time, Read this story, Luke 15, 11 to 32. We're just going to pause and recap this just like we did the other stories. But our third story is a parable. Jesus often told parables. They weren't stories that literally happened, but they're stories that may have happened. They're stories that represent something spiritual that is happening. And our third story is a parable. And in this parable, a son wants to get his inheritance from his father. You guys know what inheritance is, right? It's money. It's possessions that are going to come to you once your parents die. And so the son wants to have it right away. And he insists on having it. So the father gives it to him. The father gives him his inheritance early. And the son goes out and squanders all of his inheritance on vain pleasures and basically loses every single penny. The son then finds himself so destitute and hungry that he actually desires to eat the food of the pigs. He's that hungry. He just wants what the pigs are eating. That's how bad it gets for this son. He has nothing. He squandered everything. His life is now miserable and hopeless. You ever have a rough time in life? You ever have a bad day? I remember a bad day once. We were driving out to Chicago or somewhere in the Midwest, and our car, probably halfway through, you probably remember this story, broke down. The, the car broke down. And it just started to shake on the, on, the, on the road, and we had to pull over, and the car just wasn't going to move. It was going like three or five miles an hour at most. And uh, it was a really hot day. It was close to 100 degrees that day. A really hot day. And the car was overheating. We could tell the car was overheating. So I don't know who said, it, said this. I had a couple other guys with me, but someone said the way to drive a car that's overheating is to turn the heat on. And I said, really? Is that, is that a thing? Does that actually work? They said, yeah, yeah. Turn the heat on. That will actually force the car to cool down. And I was like, okay. So we actually tried to start the car again and start going again. And now we have the heat blasted. And now the heat is pouring into the car. It's like 100 degrees already. We have the heat on high. And literally our heads are stuck out the window like dogs trying to get some sort of semblance of air. Like probably we're all doing with masks now. And uh, it was a bad day. <laughs> And that didn't work. I don't know why someone told me that, but that, that plan didn't work real well. We got another mile down the road, and the car broke down again. And we, were, we ended up being in this town, this random podunk town, all day. 
And then we had to take it to a mechanic, and he had to fix it, and we had to wait there all day. And it was a really, really hot day. We had nowhere to go. We had no car to drive us around. It was a bad day. This son is having some bad days. He's having some bad days. He's so hungry, so destitute, that he's looking at the food of the pigs going, kind of looks good. I wish I had what they were eating. That's how bad it gets for this son. It's so bad that he considers returning to his father. But he knows what a mess he has made of his life. He knows that he squandered his inheritance that his father gave him. And he thinks in his own mind, the most, the most that I could ever get back from my father was for him to take me back as a servant. But never again as a son. I've ruined that opportunity. I can never come back as a son, but maybe, hopefully, possibly, my father will let me t- return to him as a servant to work the land. Because that's even better than what I have right now. So he considers that anything would be better than his current situation. And it's a long shot. It's definitely a long shot. But he considers that it's worth trying for. So the son attempts to come back to the father and beg his father to allow him to stay as a servant of his house and of his land. He is so desperate. He's so undeserving of any sort of love and mercy from his father. But he figures it's worth a try. It's worth a try. So that introduces us to story number three. We're going to go back to our first story now of Boaz and Ruth. I told you we're, three, we're telling three stories at the same time here. We're doing that on purpose. Um, back to our first story, Boaz takes Ruth under his wing and protection and provides for her needs. And you have to remember, Ruth had done absolutely nothing to deserve Boaz's love and care. Boaz proves what a man of God he is by loving someone who is so undeserving of his love and his care. So even further, Boaz lets Ruth eat from his banquet table. He has this banquet, he has this banquet on occasion, and he says to Ruth, Ruth, come to the banquet, eat whatever you want, eat as much as you want, whatever I have is yours to take. And he instructs his men to let Ruth glean from his field whenever she wants, as long as she wants, as much as she wants to take. And so thanks to Boaz's love, Ruth is able to take plenty of food back to her mother-in-law, Naomi, for many weeks to come. And so after Naomi discovers this and finds out how much kindness Boaz is showing to his daughter-in-law, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, she sort of instructs Ruth to never leave Boaz, never leave the kindness of Boaz. And so she actually comes up with an interesting idea for Ruth to always be around Boaz and Boaz's kindness. To sort of get this thing, uh, you guys have heard this term carte blanche or a blank check. It's basically get whatever you want, whatever you want from Boaz. Naomi has a plan for Ruth to find that sort of love for the, for the rest of her life from, from uh, Boaz. And so Boaz what was, co- was called this term a kinsman redeemer. He was a kinsman redeemer. Back in the day, families had these male relatives that had the privilege and the responsibility to act on behalf of their relations who were either in danger, trouble, or need. And Ruth has no direct relation to Boaz. But Ruth is connected to Naomi, and Boaz is also connected to Naomi through relation. So Naomi comes up with this idea that perhaps Boaz could serve as the kinsman redeemer for Ruth because she is in trouble and in need because she lost her husband. And if Boaz is able to serve as the kinsman redeemer, that means that Boaz is now in the position to help Ruth even more profoundly than he already has. If he could be the kinsman redeemer, For Ruth, her life is going to be set for the rest of her life. So that's Naomi's plan, is for Ruth to find this kinsman redeemer 
type of love from Boaz. So Naomi, Naomi tells Ruth to place herself at the best position possible to find this kinsman-redeemer type of love from Boaz. And Ruth listens to the advice of her mother-in-law. She literally places herself at the feet of Boaz in order to find his kinsman-redeemer mercy. And so Ruth does this, and Boaz, because of his good character, he desperately wants to help Ruth. He really does. He's a good man. He's a godly man. He sees the need of Ruth. He sees that she's in trouble, and he wants to help her. But based on the principles of the kinsman-redeemer relationship, there is already another man in the relationship to Naomi and Ruth who is more suited, more fit, to be the kinsman-redeemer for Ruth and Boaz. And there were principles. You couldn't just be anybody. It had to be the person that was most lined up to be the kinsman-redeemer. And that's really not Boaz at this time. There's another man who would be most suited to be the kinsman-redeemer if he wanted to for Ruth. And so Boaz wants to do things the right way. He's, he's a godly man. So he actually seeks this man out and says to this man, would you please serve as the kinsman-redeemer for Ruth? Either do that or please step aside so that I can do it. Either give me the privilege to do it or please do it yourself. And that's what he says to this man. And this man kind of considers it and he decides that he doesn't want to hurt his own personal inheritance by giving anything to some person he doesn't know, someone who's really not a relation to himself. And so he basically tells Boaz that he's going to step out of the way and let Boaz become the primary kinsman redeemer for Ruth. And Boaz is happy by this because now Ruth can find this kind of love and mercy. And this allows Boaz to love Ruth very profoundly, as sort of a male uncle might take care of his niece after her husband had died. That's kind of the relationship, at least from the beginning, that Boaz is looking for. Because he has no direct relationship to Ruth except through Naomi. But he wants to be the kinsman redeemer for Ruth because he's a really godly guy. And so... This is going to be a very special and very undeserving love that Boaz is going to display to Ruth. And I, I can't help but notice that Boaz reminds us of another coming redeemer, doesn't he? If you can tell that, Boaz is reminding us of another coming redeemer through his actions. And that continues story number one. Going back to our second story, Gomer and Hosea. Gomer the prostitute had abandoned Hosea and she chased after other lovers. But those lovers had let her down and hurt her. And now Gomer finds herself without a husband to love her, without lovers to take care of her, with several false husbands who promised to love her and didn't follow through. So now Hosea has a choice. He has a choice to either cast Gomer away from him forever because of her unfaithfulness to Hosea or possibly, potentially, Take his wife back once again, which she was very, very undeserving of. And we have the shocking response from Hosea in chapter 2. And I want you to notice this verse. I think it's verse 14 of chapter 2 of Hosea. This is what he does according to Gomer. He says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. That's the response Hosea has to his wife Gomer after she abandons Hosea, chases other lovers, and Hosea says to her, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, bring her into the wilderness, and speak tenderly to her. Not only does Hosea take Gomer back, but he does something shocking. He seeks to win her back. 
He seeks to woo his unfaithful wife back to himself so that he can love her faithfully once again. Why would Hosea do this? Why would Hosea do this? Gomer had abandoned Hosea, not the other way around. Why would Hosea put himself in the position to once again be potentially possibly hurt again by an unfaithful spouse? Why would Hosea do that? Why pursue his wife to marry her again? You know why? Hosea is acting out how our God is towards his people. That's why. Hosea is acting out God's faithfulness to his people by not only taking his wife back, but seeking to win her back to himself. It's shocking, undeserving love. That's story number two. Going back to our third story in the prodigal son parable, after squandering his inheritance, the prodigal son sheepishly, you have to imagine this, he doesn't deserve this, but he sheepishly comes back to his father's house, hoping for the minimal amount of love from his father, possibly accepting him back as a servant of his house. And he's not even sure he's going to get that kind of acceptance from his father because he's so undeserving of it. He had taken his inheritance that he didn't deserve at that time. He had taken it. He had squandered it. He had wasted it. He had acted like he wasn't a son of his father. And he knows how undeserving he is and how his father had once treated him. But he decides it's worth trying. So he comes back to his father. And here, once again, we have another shocking response taking place. It comes from Luke chapter 15. I want you to listen, listen to verses 20 to 24. It says, And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son But the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and bring a ring and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. See, the son was hoping for a a servant-like reception from his father. He would have considered that merciful for his father to take him back as a servant But instead, he received the fullness of his father's love. Even more than that, because of how much his father had missed his son, his father gives him extra special love and acceptance. He kills the fatted calf. He makes a banquet and a celebration for his son. Even though his son was hoping to be received back as a servant, he gets the fullness, the overflow of his father's love. And the forgiving father in this story reminds us of a greater and even more forgiving father in heaven, doesn't it? And that's the point. It's a parable. Representing that there is a father of astonishing forgiveness and love. And it's our father in heaven. Going back to the first story as we finish up these stories, Boaz goes to such lengths to care for Ruth. Ruth is hoping and praying that Boaz will use his influence to redeem her and make her life a little less of a struggle and a little bit more of a blessing than she otherwise would have found with no husband and no future. She's hoping for a kinsman-redeemer type of love, but Ruth gets something much more profound. And I want to read a portion of this from Ruth chapter 4, verses 7 to 13. Listen to what it says. Now this was the custom 
in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have brought, excuse me, that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. And Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamer bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. And verse 13 says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. See, Boaz not only redeems Ruth, but he takes Ruth as his wife. He went to the absolute lengths to love and accept Ruth as his own. And this is a shocking, shocking part of the story. Boaz begins by allowing Ruth to glean in his fields. He then protects her and lets her gather as much from his fields as she wants. He makes concessions in order to redeem her. And now, shockingly, he takes Ruth as his own wife and cares for her with his husband type of love for the rest of his life. Do you see the shocking detail of that story? Ruth does not deserve this. Ruth is undeserving of this kind of love and acceptance from Boaz. Boaz has no reason to do this for Ruth except to represent someone else and because he's a godly man. And this is a theme we're learning today through these stories. Undeserving. Undeserving. In our second story, after Gomer has abandoned her husband, Hosea, to chase after other lovers, and those lovers let down Gomer, Hosea does a shocking thing and actually woos Gomer back to himself and marries her all over again with his full love and acceptance. Hosea loved Gomer as if she had never left him. Undeserving. In our third story, the prodigal son was certain his father wouldn't take him back. But when the father saw his son returning home, the father ran to his prodigal son, embraced him, and threw a banquet for him, lavishing his full love and acceptance upon his son. Undeserving. See, these three stories are some of the most shocking examples we can find in Scripture and all over the world of sacrificial, undeserving love. But what do these stories represent? That's the question for today. All of these stories represent the Lord's relationship with us. We were spiritual foreigners like Ruth was. We were without a hope. We were without a future. We belonged to the devil. We had no hope. We were foreigners. We were a term called Gentiles, which actually means not God's people. We were undeserving. We were like spiritual prostitutes like Gomer was. We had chased other idols, other gods, of the heart that could never satisfy us. We were natural sinners. We were natural idolaters. We were undeserving. We were prodigal sons who had squandered everything the Father had promised to give us one day. 
We cared only about our own happiness. We were undeserving. You see, Jesus is the only begotten Son of God and the creator of the entire universe. That's what Colossians 1, 15 to 20 tell us. Jesus is everything. He's the creator. He's the Son of God. He's the Redeemer. He's the Savior. He's everything. And he once had a people who he created that were designed to be loved by him and to love him for all eternity. You see, but the Lord didn't want robots. He could have created us and forced us to love him, but he didn't want robots, so he gave his people a free will. They could either choose to accept his great love and love him in return, or they could choose to abandon Jesus and follow their own sin unto destruction. And many of us know already how this story plays out. We, the Lord's people, chose our sins over staying faithful to the Lord who had loved us and created us. We said no thanks to the Lord, and yes, please, to the sins that will definitely hurt and destroy us. And there's a similarity with the truth of the Lord's love for us in all our stories. In story number one, Boaz decides to show kindness to Ruth, even though Ruth has done nothing to deserve Boaz's love. In John 3.16, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And even though we like to consider ourselves quite lovable creatures, that's not the way scripture speaks about us. The scriptures use very different terms, terms like sinners and foreigners and not God's people by nature. That's what scripture calls us. It also likens us to pigs who roll around in the mud and dogs who return to eat their vomit. That's what it calls us before Jesus comes into our life. See, God did not love us because we were so deserving of it. On the contrary, he chose to love us because God is love, plain and simple. God is love. The truth of the Lord's love is also like our second story of Hosea and Gomer, because like Gomer, we chose to chase our sins instead of staying faithful to the Lord who loved us. We considered that sin had more to offer us than the Lord who created us and loved us faithfully. So just like Gomer, we abandoned the Lord and we were completely and foolishly wrong. We were disillusioned by sin, we were deceived by the allurement of sin, And therefore, we made a complete train wreck of our lives, completely ruining our relationship with the Lord who created us. The truth of God's love for us is also like the third story of the prodigal son and the forgiving father. We demanded our blessings to be given to us right now so we could live in splendor and comfort upon this world. We squandered our lives. We squandered our talents. We squandered our souls. We went totally and spiritually bankrupt. What could have or should have the Lord have done for us based on our abandonment of him? Just like Ruth, just like Gomer, and just like the prodigal son, we should have been cast off forever. That is what we are deserving of. We abandoned the Lord, not the other way around. But what did we get instead? This is a familiar verse to many of us, but listen to Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 8. It says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Do you notice something there? You could sum up that entire passage with one word. Undeserving. Undeserving. You see, not only did we find acceptance from our Lord, but we found him actually wooing us back to himself in green pastures. We found him embracing us like a lost child and throwing us a banquet of his spiritual blessings. We found him willing to marry us in an eternal covenantal love, and we talked about that a couple weeks ago. Maybe you guys remember the old hymn, And Can It Be? Do you guys remember that hymn? I'm going to read a couple verses of the, the old hymn, And Can It Be? It says this, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? The last verse says this, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me. I hope that you would admit, like I need to admit today, that we were undeserving of this type of love and acceptance from the Lord. Ruth, Gomer, and the prodigal son would admit that. They would admit that they were undeserving of the love they had received. And hopefully the knowledge of that love will do something profound for our souls. Because this kind of love and acceptance we find in Jesus is so foreign today. Do we honestly think we can find this kind of love and acceptance anywhere else? Anywhere. Do we believe anyone can match the great love of our God through Jesus? Can anyone? Can anywhere we find that kind of love? And this kind of love is what causes people to lay their lives down for Jesus. His shocking love for them. If he loved me to that degree, then my life is his. That is the reason some people lay their lives down for Jesus Christ. Wooing us back to himself is one thing. Throwing us a banquet of spiritual blessings is another thing. Marrying us in a covenant love is an amazing truth altogether. You see, but the Lord Jesus went a step further. He stepped on the cross and he spilled his blood for us. Boaz had intense love for Ruth. But he can't say that. Hosea had shocking forgiveness and love towards Gomer. But he can't say that. The forgiving father lavished his love upon his prodigal son. But he can't say that. But our Lord Jesus proved his unfathomable love at the cross of Calvary. You see, in these three stories, we are Ruth. We are Gomer. And we are the prodigal son. We were all undeserving of the Lord's amazing love for us. And wouldn't that be a great way to end this lesson? Just put a period there and just let us think on that for a moment. But what if we flip these stories around? What if instead of looking at Ruth, Gomer, and the prodigal son as the main characters, which is often what people do, what if we looked at Boaz, Hosea, and the forgiving father as the main characters? Wouldn't we immediately change our perspective from undeserving to deserving? 
And that's the point. That's the point. A marriage or a covenant with the Lord Jesus is before us all today. You see, on one side of the altar is the undeserving Ruth, Gomer, the prodigal son, and us. On the other side of the altar is the deserving Boaz, Hosea, the forgiving father, and Jesus. See, but this story isn't just about one or the other. It's not. It's about both sides. The undeserving being united with the deserving in a loving, eternal, covenant relationship. The Lord Jesus died for the undeserving and promises us love faithfully for the rest of eternity. And we know this to be true. We are undeserving of this type of love. And although we believe we don't deserve his love, we are thankful for that love. I know I am. But we aren't the point of the story. We aren't the point of the story. We aren't the main characters of God's plan. Jesus is. The undeserving receiving God's amazing, full love should melt our hearts and cause us to ask this one question today. If he loved us, if he loved me that much as undeserving creatures, then what sort of love is the deserving worthy of? When their perspectives were accurate, do you think Ruth had a hard time showing love to Boaz? Do you think Gomer, after Hosea took her back, was hard for her to find love to show back to her husband, Hosea? Do you think the prodigal son, after the banquet was thrown, had a hard time showing love to his father? Should we have a hard time showing love to our Lord Jesus? Should that be difficult for us? To love the Lord who loved us when we were so undeserving. Just because I think it's powerful, I'm going to read the song, the quote of the song once again, and then we'll close. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? If the undeserving, if we as the undeserving receive so much love, then what is the deserving worthy of. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you. It seems insufficient just to say those words because of how much love and acceptance we've received from you through Jesus, but I thank you for it, and I want it, and I need it. I thank you for what Jesus did on the cross. I thank you for what you did by sending your son to this sin-cursed earth to die. I can't say thank you enough, but I want to live a life that is worthy of what you deserve. And I want my entire church to live that life as well. Because of who you are and what you deserve. We are very undeserving, but you are very, very deserving. And I pray that we would be touched by that today. And we would say to you in great confidence, whatever it is, wherever you want, however long you want, you, Lord, have a blank check because of what you've done for me, because of who you are to me. 
Touch our souls today, Father. Renew, rekindle a love that perhaps has become cold and indifferent and cause us to linger and look at the amazing love we received and then consider what are you worthy of from our lives. Thank you for the opportunity to study this today. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.